Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Ex-child of light, listen close and listen clear. You cannot stop me now. The seven points have come together. The third star has merged. For 18 days, you have tortured me and humiliated me. You said you're going to give me 30 more. Well, let me tell you this. Call it off now. For 18 days, you have tried to torture me abuse me don't you realize that any other mortal man do you by now and every day my power feels that your power gets darker and darker cut off now i cannot take 30 days and i offer you this Call it off now, or you will see the haze. It's up to you. What's it going to be? I can't take 12 more days of torture, because if I do, from the pit, the purple haze will come, and then you don't stand a chance beside us to rule together, the three of us, because Rhodes you are dark side now. You are just like me. And Gordon Foley, you talk about me being off the mainstream. I see you carry the old Egyptian ways around your finger. <laughs> and ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition. Well, actually, the first official edition of Beyond Bonfire. Today, we are joined by none other than one of the greatest legends in this wrestling business, a bona fide first ballot Hall of Famer, the game master, the taskmaster, the leader of the Army of Darkness, the leader of the Dungeon of Doom, a man who has wrestled for every promotion you could think of and has been a top star all over the world, and the creative mind behind why WWE was beating the ratings for 92 weeks. Ladies and gentlemen, Kevin Sullivan has joined us tonight. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for the intro. Thank you for the intro. And uh, before we start, I'd just like to say something. I was watching that interview, you know. Mm-hmm. Do you think with that face painted, I'd get away with it today, the way it was painted? There's no way. There's no way. No. no. Not and this. that was as far out of my mind as possible. Do you know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's, it's the, you know, symbol of yin and yang, light and dark, you know, sunrise, sunset, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I understand. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's how much the world has changed. It really has changed a lot. And um, I like to think sometimes for the better, but as far as 
in art and as far as in performance and especially in professional wrestling, I think it's taken a turn for the worst because I feel things like that, you know, envelope pushing should still be allowed in professional wrestling. To me, that wasn't a race look. It was what you said. It was the yin and yang, the, you know, the sunrise sunset, you know, it was just as clear as, you know, day and night. Uh, But Kevin, we got a lot of stuff to cover here today, Kevin. Kevin, let's just give everybody an intro. Tell us just a little bit of how you got started in the business. It was crazy. I mean, brother, you talk about nowhere near what the business is. I wrestled amateur for 10 years, and I wrestled, uh, you know, uh, Waltham Boys Club, Cambridge YMCA, and I used to wrestle for the Boston YMC Union, not A, the Union, second oldest athletic club in the United States, the first being Mm -hmm. the New York Athletic Club. So I used to wrestle there and uh, amateur, and I would see the wrestlers there, the pro wrestlers, they come in for the show, you know what I mean? Uh, yes. And they play handball, racquetball, lift weights, run, the whole thing. And I was there one day, and a guy came up to me and said, uh, <coughs> I was working out with a kid, and we finished, and he said, uh, would you like to work out? I said, sure. So we started working out, and he said, you're going to be here tomorrow? I said, yeah. So we became fast friends. Now, let me give you the guy's background. His name was Peter Berry. Okay. He he was from South Africa. He went to Oxford and Harvard Business School. His family family were the the Berry's diamond mine. Second largest diamond mine at the time in the world. And obviously, complete opposite of, you know, what you grew up from, you know. Right. And he was wanted to be nothing but a pro wrestler. He also was a very handsome guy. He did uh, he did arrow shirt commercials. He was in some uh, uh, days of our lives, you know that kind of stuff. Soap operas. Yeah. And he did a bunch of uh, commercials. Yeah. Uh, but he couldn't wrestle pro because it was beneath. You know, he's an aristocrat. It was beneath his family. But he wrestled in Montreal, and this is a very interesting story. There was a guy, his name was, wrestled as Pat Curry in Europe. Mm -hmm. His real name was Pat Gerard. Pat Curry, at one time in the 30s and 40s, and probably, I'm going to say to the 50s, he would work in London sometimes four times a night not a week oh wow and they gave him a rolls royce chauffeur rolls royce to drive him around i mean he was not just big in england he was big on the continent picked up a a heroin addict uh problem and uh because he was such a great athlete when he came home to Montreal and a great wrestler, he opened up a wrestling school at Verdun. That's a suburb of Montreal. And he trained Pat Patterson. He trained Ronnie Garvin. He trained Terry Garvin, uh, Fernand Frechette, a host of other guys. 
what, what a list right there. What a list of great French Canadian athletes right yeah, there. Yeah. And, uh, 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 Michelle Dubois, who was elected later at Alexa Smirnoff. I mean, the list goes on and on. I think Dino Bravo, the list goes on and on and on. Well, Montreal at one time was the best wrestling city in the North America. They had yeah. two, they had the Rougeos and the Vachons. And they oh, had wow. a ballpark called uh, Gerard Park. I think the park was built for the Olympics they had in Montreal. But I remember I went up to wrestle for Pat on a Sunday. And that was like a, a free house, a, a safe house. Guys yeah. from both, territor- both territories could, uh, both companies, not territories, both companies could work there because oh, wow. Pat was... Pat was so revered. And uh, I remember the weekend I went up, uh, the Rougeos drew like 34,000 people in the park on a Friday, and the Fashons did like almost 40,000 on Saturday. Gee, so, so the payday must have been amazing for the guys who were working for them back then, too. Yeah, and they were working, you know, here's the thing. Uh, they ended up working together because uh, Jacques Rougeau was supposed to be a tough guy that had this knockout punch that had knocked a bunch of people up. And people don't understand the history. We've talked about it before. This was very similar to Japan where there was some, oh, how, how can I word this properly? There was some outside influence that wasn't the best, okay? Hmm. Yes. And, uh, but if you know Montreal, it's like South Boston, same thing. So well, I mean, there's, there's going to be stories about people involved in situations like that coming out later this year in documentary form. Okay, but what it was was, Mad Dog Vachon went to the Olympics in 1948, and he was yeah. a strike breaker, you know. I mean, you heard, uh, I don't know if you heard, but there's a very famous story where Mad Dog Vachon pulled a guy's eye out, and the guy was going, his brother was going crazy. His eye, his eye, give it to me, give it to me, we'll get it sewed up. And mm. Mad Dog threw it in his mouth and swallowed it. I mean, so they eventually worked a match with the Rougeaus and with no Jacques Rougeau against Mad Dog. And I think later on, because Jacques had a brother too, I think they had a yeah. couple tactics. But even back then, people questioned the legitimacy of wrestling. Yeah. But they came out because they knew these guys were legit tough guys. It would be like Brock. Uh, rock wrestling, Ming. Yeah, in a neutral place. You know what I mean? They yeah, it's, it's, especially considering Raymond Rougeau's background in boxing and everything like that, and the Vachans being the Vachans. I mean, yeah. you can absolutely see that going on back then. So when you were when you got there to Canada, was that how you got your start in the seventies with the WWWF? No, no. Uh, oh, I actually. Uh, this was late 1969, and I was working in Montreal. wasn't smart. 
to the business and they sent me out there and uh you were not no no they didn't give you a clue of anything that was no. going on so you were no. just going out there killing people no this first night this happened the first night i knew because peter had told me what it was and uh, i he i had trained with him so i knew what work it was but i'm in uh, the dress room and I said to Peter when are they going to tell me what's happening he said oh uh, pretty soon so he said to the referee hey what, what, are you going to clue this guy in he said I'll be back this went on all night so they sent me out with Fernand Fichette who was a big star yeah and uh, I'm lost completely lost panic situation and I potated him and he rolls outside the ring and He's standing on the apron, yeah. and he's holding on to the top rope. Well, you know all the back in the day, the bullshit where you you slung the guy in by grabbing the ropes. Yeah. Well, I panicked. I didn't know what to do, and I hit the opposite ropes, and I came off about forty miles an hour, and I knocked him about three rows back. <laughs> he got up and said, "F this." You can curse on this. Don't worry, we all do. Okay. He said, fuck this, and he's walking back to the dressing room, and I panic, and I jump up, because Charlie Cook happened to be there. Charlie Cook always tells the story, we tell the story, that I jumped up on the top rope, I'm shitting my pants, because I knew I screwed up, and I'm yelling, come back, come back. Yeah. <laughs> and now I'm going to go back to the dressing room. And I thought, wow, I'm going to get, be, have to be ready to fight and get my ass kicked or whatever, so... I get back and he says, what the hell happened? And I said, hey, nobody smartened me up. I didn't say smartened me up. I said, nobody told me uh, what to do. And he grabbed the referee and I thought he was going to kill him. And him and I became very good friends. And when I would go up to wrestle Montreal, he'd be nice enough to take me to the ring, which was really taboo then. Really? But they, yeah, they would not have anybody in the building and he would take me in the ring and show me some stuff and then i was working between there and i was working 234 williamsburg brooklyn uh upstairs at uh i said rosario yeah marcel rivera too yeah marcel rivera and i there was johnny rods my trainer yeah there was uh pedro there was Victor Rivera. There was Carlos Colon, uh, Ramon Perez. I mean, big s- stars at that era. You were just surrounded by Puerto Ricans the whole time. Yeah, I was the only uh, Anglo in the gym. <laughs> I was the only Anglo in the gym. And what I used to do was after the after I uh, would work out, because they had training and lockdown, you know, during the day. And then you'd yeah. wrestle on Friday and Saturday night. For, and they had... You know, people paying to come in. Like, after I worked out, I would go to uh, the theater right around the corner and see, you know, El Santo, Mil Mascaras, uh, Blue Demon movies. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. That's really great. That's awesome. So, I want to fast forward just a little bit with some of the highlights we got here because we got something really cool I want to start you with. We're going to go to March 20th, 1976. So, five days removed from so many years ago we're gonna see that young fresh face baby face kevin sullivan live in action 
with Crusher Blackwell. And Kevin, I just want you to talk over this. We don't have the sound on this one. And we just want to, we want to know a little something. Tell us about what it was like working for the WWF at, at the time. Oh, I was a very lucky guy. Uh, Vince Sr. was more than nice to me. I had worked there, uh, I'm going to say it was 73. I went up for Christmas to go home. I was in the business six years, five years before I went up there. But I had gone up and worked a week at Christmas time. And uh, when I got to the WWF at the time, uh, it was in Philly where they filmed Rocky, you know? Yeah. And uh, everybody left the room because they, they, uh, they, the dress room was like you saw in Rocky. But everybody was in and out. It was very early. And Vince had put his books out. And I guess I was a had balls bigger than Dallas. I don't know. But I went over and looked in this book. And I'm saying, how does he, he had the year already booked out? Wow. Because I had come in November of 75 for TVs. And he had booked out all of 76. So I'm looking at the book and there's Hanson, who's got three matches. There's Brody that's got two. Sight unseen, he hasn't really seen these guys. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and he's got uh, some guys, one one uh, garden show and all his top matches, even at the end of the year, his main event, his next guy that was going to work with Bruno and uh, the tag team and then a special attraction match. And they all would probably take place unless somebody got hurt. But yeah. uh, uh, so he walked in, he saw me looking at his book. He says, what are you doing? I said, I'm looking at your book. He said, why? <laughs> I said, I just don't understand how you do it. He said, well, you want to learn? Got so much heat with all his cronies. Wow. Sat me down there. And he was very good. I think he did that because Eddie and him were very good friends. And I had, you know, spent two years with Eddie at that time. Yeah. And this now, now what memories do you have of working Crusher Blackwell? He was an unbelievably great performer for his size. And I mean, he was pretty agile for his size. And then I got Freddie Blassie and I'm feeding Freddie because... I knew that if I made Freddie look good, you know, he'd say, there's a little bit of political things. He'd say, yeah. you know, the guy's good. Now, his, they bring Freddie out, and I think that's because I had fed Freddie so much that someone in the background <laughs> said, Jesus Christ, the next thing he'll be doing is he'll be biting him in the head, you know, he's the vampire earlier. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he'll start sucking his blood. Yeah, yeah, so they, they did. And, and Blackwell was a, I think this may be the draw, right? Is this going to be a time? Um, I'm not sure. I wanted to watch this one with you full boom. Yeah. Look at that big shot right there. Yeah. Uh, he was, like I said, you'll see him do some stuff. And then this is, uh, he really drew money. Hey, that's Mario Savoli, the referee. Yeah. He, There's he, a lot he, of history in this ring right here. 
Yeah, he uh, Blackwell drew a lot of money everywhere he went, and after this, I believe, is when he went. He ever he either came from North Carolina or was going there, and the other one, uh, the other one was the AWA. He drew a lot of money. As, yeah, know. he absolutely did, and they did those really cool promo packages where they put out the giant two by four and had them splash it to break it in half. Right. I remember all that here, but I mean, I'm I'm just really entertained watching a lot of this, especially since for for my career of watching wrestling, I never really got to see you work as as a babyface, and so it's really interesting to see you working as a babyface here. Well, I learned one thing too, uh, <laughs> and I appreciated later when I became a heel was. If you get a baby face to really sell for you, it makes the match a lot easier at all you have to do. I mean, the guy the guy I learned how to be a baby face was Ken Lucas. And if you ask Ricky Morton who's the greatest baby face he ever worked with and tagged with, he's gonna tell you Ken Lucas. Ken Lucas taught Ricky how to sell. Ken was Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. So you know, it, I think that at this period, uh, I under—I was starting to understand the business, and uh, you can make it easier on yourself or harder on yourself. But uh, you know, the difference of today and then is—you know—we're—we're we're on the ground, basically. I mean, I don't think uh, I've thrown a drop kick or or anything, but Blackwell. I just saw where he took the bump from me from the punches, but he yeah. staggered. He staggered. He was a big man. This is what was so impressive about him. He knew not to just to go down. Yeah, he would sell on the run, which is yeah. a lost art form. The the last guy I've really seen who understands selling on the run would be like the Undertaker. Other than that, I really don't see it too much. Right. On a mainstream level. Yeah, and. Uh, Well, uh -huh. there's that infamous double yeah. stomp. Yeah, I didn't realize I was doing it back then. So, Oof. yeah, and now I see them doing it off the top rope with the people's faces, and whoa, they've taken this. I mean, the guys today are so athletic. I mean, nobody can take anything away from these young men. They are fabulous. I, I just every time I go to a show like P, PCW Ultra. Uh, and you see Wabis with Joseph and Fatu, or you see, yeah. uh, you know, any of their guys, uh, it just blows me away how talented they are. Like Fatu, I've had four generations of Samoans in, in my life, and Fatu is by far the best of them all. Really? Oh, yeah. He's 300 pounds, and he can hit the ropes and he does like this uh, round off handspring into the ropes and comes off and does a flip. I mean, he's 300 pounds. Oh, wow. He, he's, so he's, he's like that next evolution of Yokozuna when Yoko was smaller and he was doing all that crazy stuff. Yeah. He, uh, his dad is uh, the uh, Tonga kid. So, yeah. Uh, his dad was a great worker, you know. 
And oh, absolutely. Yeah. With Blackwell here, uh, you know, the one thing I uh, prided myself on was learning to throw a punch, and I worked at that very hard. But, you know, this is a different type. Uh, this is where I can say back in the day when a guy came into the territory, you'd know where he came from, even if you didn't know where he came from, because the work was, this is the kind of work they had in the WWF was ground attack, not so many high spots. Uh, well, yeah, because really, I mean, you didn't get, you didn't really see a lot of crazy high flying till, you know, Jimmy Snuka and Lanny Poffo and when they started bringing in some of the luchadors. Right. And uh, so, yeah, like early 80s, late 70s, early 80s is when they really started to start showing that stuff. Okay. So right now we're, we're talking about uh, this is mostly ground stuff. Now, if you went to San Francisco, they were doing high spots. They were doing uh, some high flying <laughs> If you went to Georgia, it was similar to this, but it was actually a slower style. Yeah. If you, if you went to uh, uh, the Carolinas, at this time, it was almost all tag team matches. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Look at I that. Mean, Big deal on Blackwell. Yeah, I mean, he was a great athlete. I mean, he's 400 pounds here, and he's taking a big yeah. on And there we go. We have... Do we have I'm a draw? Sure. Oh, thank you. No, but the ref gave it to you. Yeah, the ref gave it, which was uh, uh, strange that they used to do that once in a while. And I, I kind of picked that up when I, I was booking. I, I thought that was a great thing to do, you know, because it doesn't hurt the heel. It, it, it kind of gives the baby face an upper thing. Yeah. And I think that that was the genius of Vince McMahon. Senior, and I'll take anything away from Junior. I mean, you know, he revolutionized wrestling, but just little things that he did was uh, intense to me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we actually have our first question here that just yeah. came up. Uh, the question that's going to be posted up here on the screen, real quick. Uh, it says memories about the cage match with the Wright brothers in Johnson City. Oh, the, the Wright brothers were, they were a special breed. They were a special breed. I used to wrestle in Johnson City. I lucky, I was very lucky in my career. Johnson City was actually, absolutely a individual territory within a territory. Does that really? make sense? Yeah. yeah. A guy, John Kazana, owned Johnson City. He owned Knoxville. The old Morristown and a couple of other spot shows like uh, uh, Marysville, uh, Norris Dam, the town of Norris. And uh, yeah. I was lucky that I went there and uh, they gave me White, they gave Whitey to me. And Whitey Which Whitey Caldwell was the biggest yeah. baby face at that time that they had. I mean, unbelievable. They still go visit his grave to this day. I, I was there the night in the park, uh, Chilhowee Park Stadium, where 
he wrestled Dory Funk Jr. And at the 50-minute mark, the people started booing because they knew nobody could last 60 minutes with Whitey. Uh, I mean, and him, him and Ron Wright had legendary matches. And the rights, I think, who said this about me and the rights in the cage, I think they're talking about the match that preceded this. Yeah. I, I, I'll tell you that story. Ron Wright, these, I would... I was wrestling Johnson City every Tuesday. At that time, it was, it was in the state. wasn't all the way done, so it was a long trip. It was like 330 miles from Nashville. Oof. So uh, I'd go up there and wrestle, and they put me and Whitey together, and I noticed that all the matches, the three of them would be bleeding, and I wouldn't. Uh-huh. So one night... <laughs> We, it was a strange place because it was one of the few places that we dressed in the same dress room. So we came out different doors. Yeah. So it looked like it was separation. Yes. So Ron reaches into his bag, pulls out a file, and then pulls out a pair of brass knuckles with a chisel on top. Jesus. And he starts chiseling. I said, what's that? He said, oh, it's a... <laughs> It's the chisel, boy. It's just the chisel. I said, what do you mean it's the chisel? He said, everybody I wrestle meets the chisel. <laughs> what? He said, everybody I wrestle meets the chisel. I said, you better put that away. You're not going to do it to me. He said, what's the matter? Don't they got chisels up north? I'm thinking, oh, God. <laughs> So I looked at Whitey and Whitey smirked and he said, oh, he's just fooling around. I said, Ron, I swear to God, I hope you don't have that chisel in the match tonight. And I was chained to his brother and Whitey was chained to him. So during the match, they got color. All of a sudden, Donnie Wright flying mares me and grabs my head, pulls it. Pulls it. Hold on. Pulls it. And uh, what happens was, uh, sorry about that. What happens was, he flying mirrors me, pulls my head, puts his thigh out. Ron Wright reaches in his tights, pulls the chisel out, and puts it on his hand. Brother, it looked like one of those cartoons where the axe goes wah, wah, wah. Uh, he can't move, and he hit me. And instantaneously, I had blood in my boots. Jesus. I couldn't see. I thought he blinded me. So I'm up, and I reach up, and it's that thick blood. You know about it. It's like real yeah. thick. It, it's uh-huh. in my face, and I pull it out of my eyes, and I see Donnie, because what he had punched him, so on. I took I took the chain off my wrist and wrapped it around my fist. And I said, I could kill him before they kill me. And I ran as hard as I could and hit him, broke his nose and cut him really bad over his left eye. And he stumbled into the corner. And I said, I'm going to kill him before his brother gets me. And I grabbed him by the throat and I pulled back to hit him. And he said, that away, youngster. 
just laid in. That's how we like it up here. I said, oh, God. I took the chain off, left the ring. I said, bullshit. I left it. <laughs> so they laughed about that forever, but my head was numb for a year. I think I got uh, 26 stitches, but my head was absolutely numb. But everybody got hit by the chisel. And then, like, once a month on Tuesdays and once a month on Knoxville, Ron Wright would open the show by challenging anybody, and they would come down and almost look like a work. It was so easy for him to do this, but he beat the shit out of people. I mean, he would really hurt people. And people really? believed in him. You know, they burnt his airplane down. Uh, they, they stabbed him. They stabbed beat him. bombed his house. I mean, he, and uh, he just knew how See, to See, that's the crazy him. thing to me. They bombed his house is a yeah. real story. That's yeah. not a That's not a saying. No. Somebody bombed a man's house. I mean. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, uh. Uh, Whitey, I don't know uh, how he, if he had lived, he would have been a big star. And he wasn't a big guy. And back in the day, I mean, it was a, mostly big guys. And Whitey was tough as nails, man. Tough as nails. And what a sweetheart. I mean, because I was a punk kid and I didn't know uh, a wristwatch from a wrist lock. And, and they, he took me under his wing, and I, I lucked out. I had Ken Lucas before him as a partner, and Kenny was one of the greatest baby faces of all time. In fact, Jack Briscoe used to say, of the top five workers you ever work with, Ken Lucas is in that top five. Wow. Yeah. And, he, and if if you ask Punky about Kenny Lucas, oof. Oh, he loves and Kenny if, Yeah, and if you look, read uh, Donnie Fargo's book, he talks about how great a former Ken Lucas was. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, speaking of the Knoxville territory, yeah, we got some footage here. It's a little promo I want you to watch right now. It's from the year 1979. It's from Southeast Championship Wrestling. You just had a little situation happen here, and this is you talking about what's going to happen. Now, once we're done with this, I got to ask you a question. Yeah. So we're going to go ahead and play this one for you. Didn't matter to me if you were in Hong Kong, if you went to Japan, if you went to New Zealand, Tanaka. Didn't you think that I was going to come? Didn't you know that after you attacked my father, Tanaka, the man is a 64-year-old man in the twilight of his life. You're a professional athlete, one of the top martial art experts in the world. You're rated one of the top ten as a professional heavyweight wrestler. You're in the prime of your career, Tanaka. And let me tell you one thing. You must have made a big mistake if you didn't think I was coming. And I'm coming, brother. I'm coming to Memphis. And let me tell you one thing, Tora Tanaka. You're going to have to prove to the people in Memphis, and you're going to have to prove to me that you're as good and as tough as you think you are. And you're not going to be facing a 64-year-old man that's helpless. Tanaka, you owe me something. You owe my family something. What makes my blood boil is what you could have done to my father, what could have happened. You injured him, but it could have been a lot more than an injury, Tanaka. And let me tell you one thing. If you think you're going to beat me on a three count or something like that, then that ain't going to end that way, brother. Because I'm going to come for you, Tanaka. And I'm going to come hard. And if I have to get a chair, a bell, a table, you owe me something. And you owe my family something. And what do you owe me is a piece of your hide. 
And when you look across from me, when you get in the ring, you're not going to see a 64-year-old helpless man. And what you better do tonight is you better look hard and you better look long and you better stick your head between your legs and kiss your butt goodbye because it belongs to me, Tanaka. And when I come to Memphis, when I come to Memphis, Tanaka, I'm going to be gunning for you. And you better show me. You better show me how tough you are, Tanaka. And I don't think you're half as tough as you think you are because I'm not a 64-year-old man, Tanaka. And I'm coming to Memphis. I'm not going to get a piece of your. Kev? I guess I thought I had a microphone, huh? <laughs> That's exactly what I wanted to ask you about. Wow. Wow. <laughs> now, that angle to me is really great. It was a great discovery I found um, between you and Professor Tanaka. And what a lot of people don't know is in that angle, that was your actual father. Right, right. And How did that come to happen? Well, I had done it in San Francisco with Bob Roop, and it blew the territory open. And I mean, every if you talk to uh, some people in San Francisco that they were there at the time, I mean, I was following the toughest act in the world. I was following Stevens and Patterson, and I'm not and wasn't in there. Ray Stevens to me is one, if one of the two greatest workers I've ever seen. Oh, he's he's he was the, the he was the original Dynamite Kid. He was the original, you know, the best. Yeah technical wrestler world, him and um, Al Costello, the amazing kangaroos. Yeah, and uh, that was a hard act to follow, and I thank God my dad was willing to do that because it blew the territory open, but Tanaka, his name has been lost in history. Tanaka, you know, he was uh, two, he was probably five, ten and a half, he was 280 pounds of muscle, uh, he was Chinese Hawaiian. Uh, his name was Charlie Kalani. He was an expert marksman in the military. He could absolutely do this, and I didn't believe until I saw a film of it. He could put two candles in a uh, range, right? In a shooting range inside and light them, put an axe in the middle of the shooter's gun upside down, it would hit the axe and blow out the candles. Oh, wow. He was, yeah, he, he when he died, he was buried in full uh, military gear. I mean, this guy was the real deal. Yeah. And But he was like most of the uh, island boys who were so laid back. You know, I think sometimes uh, the guys that are so good and so laid back they don't get the do because they don't uh, toot their own horn. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But but Professor Tanaka, everybody also needs to understand, he was one of, uh, along with Johnny Rods, he was one of Vince's regulators, Vince Sr.'s regulators. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. He, if you, he, they tested you, and they tested your attitude. Oh, yeah. And Tanaka, I mean, I, I have one of the greatest angles I ever did was with Tanaka. And he was such a great guy. I, I, I can't tell you how good he was. I mean, and uh, the thing about it was he could go to New York, wrestle Bruno, right? Uh-huh. Get beat, go away for three months or four months, 
Because back then, usually when a heel was done with Bruno one time around, two or three shows, the guy, you were done. But Tanaka could, and he did this quite frequently, he could go and work with Bruno, go away for six months and come back and work with him again. And then yeah. they put him in tag situations, you know, him and Monsoon, him and Fuji. Yeah. That's fantastic. Now, uh, Kevin, what we got coming up for you next right here, uh, we're going to continue down the road a little bit here. Um, I believe this is Georgia, or, or this may still be Knoxville. Um, okay. We're going to go ahead and we're going to show some footage here. It's going to be Austin Idol versus Kevin Sullivan, 1979, in a Boston street fight. So we got some footage here. It's uh, the highlights of the match. Do you remember uh, where this one's from? Yeah, it's from Georgia. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's from Georgia. Yeah. Now we see you both come in, street clothes are rocking. Now, the interesting thing a lot of people forget about Austin Idol is he had a great run in New York as uh, Iron Mike McCord. Before right. he had the secondary run as Austin Idol, um, what was it like working with Austin Idol at this time? It was great. I mean, we really uh, drew some money there, and we became partners. And it was a great thing when I became his partners. I used to do the interviews, right? And I'd say, yeah. them, you know, something every morning when I get up and look in the mirror, I'm disgusted. He said, what do you mean, Jackson? You know, do his hair. I said, because I yeah. realize I'll do anything for money to be your partner. You are scum. We get into arguments. and Everybody thought, you know, where that was leading, that we were going to turn yeah. on one another. But we never did. And, uh, you know, we had a run as against each other. Then we had a run, me and him, against Mark Lewin, Frankie Kane, the great Mephesto in Abdul the Butcher. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that, that yeah, there's, there's Scrappy McGowan, the referee, one of the great referees of all times. Yeah. Yeah. See, and I love watching old footage like this. I mean, I wish we could have some audio just so you could hear how the crowd's reacting to all this. Yeah. It was just such a different era of wrestling, but I used to, I love watching it all the time and here we go we see Austin Idol come back in back on the jump on you um what were your first uh memories of going into Georgia working over there well I had actually started in the NWA first NWA territories was in Georgia uh little known fact I was there was a territory in South Carolina that Dutch Mantel's brother owned and he had TV Red Cowan was his name. And uh, what happened was I had been, they had pushed me a little with Dutch on TV. Dutch and I were working in Swanara. An old timer that the Crockett's knew came and said, hey, they want you to go to Georgia. And, uh, you know, I went to Georgia. I was there. Uh, 
September, no, October, November, and December. December, I went home for Christmas. Then I went to uh, the Panhandle, which was the Gulf Coast, you know? Yeah. And I, I got my real start. And the other one, I mean, I was just trying to uh, learn a little bit. But when I went to the Panhandle, they put me with Ken Lucas right away. And I was a very, I've, I've been very lucky. I've had wonderful partners that have carried me for a long time. Yeah. Oof. That looked brutal. <laughs> yeah. Did you just see what I saw with Idol and you right there? Yeah. 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 And there you go with the dive out right onto the floor. You see, and, and I feel like this is a lost art, the art of the actual brawl in professional wrestling, where it looks like a real fight. And, you know, it's just, uh, it really it bothers me sometimes that, you know, guys didn't take a page from you and, like, sit down. And I mean, there's some guys who have learned that, but I've, I always felt like wrestling's built on a fight more than a wrestling match. At least heat sure. is brought on by a fight. And, I mean... You were one or you went. Say that again. I'm sorry. Uh, everywhere you went, you were one of the best. You know, everywhere you went, every time I'd watch you wrestle, I would see you in a brawl, and I would believe every second of that fight I would see you in. I think I got that from Ken Lucas because that's how he worked. And uh, one of the things I learned from Ken, and I used to get shit from a bunch of guys about this. I didn't take many flat back bumps because everybody took it that way. So if everybody's taken that way, doesn't it kind of look like it's a work? So I would go forward. I go on my side. I wouldn't yeah. go take uh, occasionally. I would. And I also, I was doing that. Then I learned it from Mark Loon. Mark would take a bump like he was uh, a boxer, fall on his face, fall sideways. You know. Yeah. Mark Loon was the top five baby faces of all times and heel. I mean, he was Dusty, and that isn't just for me. That's from Dusty Rhodes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Meyer. So now, from there, of course, we get to get into the fun stuff now. My favorite Kevin Sullivan era. Uh, We're going to start showing some clips from Florida right now. As a matter of fact, the first one we're getting ready to show is one of my favorites. It's going to be Kevin Sullivan in the Purple Haze. Uh, excuse me, Dusty Rhodes versus the Purple Haze. And a very interesting angle that I remember the first time I saw this as a kid on a mixtape. I was just like, oh, my God. I think I know where you're going. Yeah. And and once it happens, I just want to know how the hell you got this past the censors on television. Well, because of Eddie's geniuses. Yeah, here you come. Look at that ripped. Yeah. This is when you were still doing bodybuilding, wasn't it? No, I had this was about a year afterwards, but I was still and I was training with Mark, who was the best workout partner of all time. This guy was oh, look at him. He's a beast. In 83, he's still squatting 405 for reps. Oof. Oh. That's There's that's insane. Yeah, that's right, Daddy. Yeah, gotta love it. What are some of your uh, memories about uh, starting in Florida? 
Well, I didn't start in Florida, but I got my. Well, I mean, when you started working in yeah. Florida, oh, it was it was, it was an experience, and uh, Eddie was so <laughs> smart. That's why we got away with this angle. It was they looked the other way because you know Eddie gave ten percent of the houses to the sheriff's boys' ranch. Look at Marky; he was a maniac. Oh God! Yes, I love it. Breaking the chair before he even yeah. hits Dusty with yeah. it. Just this, the broken part, uh, you know, he was, and he looked the part, you know what I mean? One of the things about Mark Lewin that people don't know that's a pretty unique thing, he was one of the greatest swimmers I've ever seen. I've poured more water out of my socks than most people have seen. Uh, yeah. But Marky was a great swimmer. We used to swim in some outrageous Outrageous tides and dot we used to uh, scuba dive in some crazy places. But well, Mark was, wasn't Mark in the Philippines there. with you? Singapore, he lived. Uh, and Singapore, went, yeah, yeah. yeah. I so, mean, uh, I mean, any crazy stories of over there of uh, scuba oh, diving and swimming oh, out? Yeah, we we dove over there, and uh, I mean, every day was a different experience. I mean, the sharks. I mean. We, uh, I started, I've only seen this twice. A sunfish, you know, that they look like a brim. Are you aware of them? Yeah. They can be 14 feet long and they're thick. They're just like a, like someone cut a fish in half. They got this little tail, but, you know, they can weigh a ton. It's, yeah. 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 That's crazy. Yeah. That's awesome. And so that's how you, is that how you and Mark's uh, friendship really blo- blossomed was, you know, your love of, of the ocean and going and in. Pacalolo, I mean, it, you know, some Pacalolo yeah. with Curtis, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I it, was a great, it was a great, uh, it was a great place to work between Hawaii and, you know, Samoa, Singapore, Hong Kong. It was uh Malaysia, it was a great place to work. Well, you know, here's the thing. Uh, you know, Dusty was so over in Florida. I mean, you didn't have to do much. I remember one time Lala came in to work with Dusty, be Dusty's partner against me and Mark. And Lala said, well, what do these guys do? He said, not much, but make noise, chop, and draw money. Mark was such a money drawer. I mean, he was at 16 years old. He was Rocker's partner. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I actually, when I was in school, I had his book. I was a teenage pro wrestler. I bought that at a book sale yeah. when I was in school. Yeah. So like, and it was really cool to see look like all the. There we go. Yeah. Oh, look at him selling all the way to the rope like that, catching himself in the rope. I love that. Yeah, that's a J.J. Dillon move. The flip-flop and fly and the hully gully is our name. The hully gully. Excellent. Yeah. I mean, I mean, this is setting up us. This was setting up Dusty, Mark, me, Blackjack, the four of us together. And then yeah. Kendall, uh, Barry into the mix. I think this is Roop. Oh, yeah, that's Bob Brew. Yeah. You can tell by the chest. And here you come in the rig now. Is that the ring bell in your hand? Yeah, 
I'm sure there's something. I mean, I'm not going to come in. Not it's some crazy. Oh, it's the spike. Oh, the spike. It's the golden spike. Yeah. Here comes oh, Black yeah. Man right there. He pushed it out of, the, out of the way to save Dusty, you know. And you now, stab Blackjack Mulligan with the golden spike. He's having a heart attack. Yeah. yeah. God. And the blood coming from the chest and everything. It was just, I couldn't believe you got away with this on TV. Yeah, he was, he was. Jack and then was he had the locker room clearing. Jack really uh, put me over. I mean, this guy was the best. And he was a huge, huge star, especially in the Southeast and in the, everywhere he worked, really. He was a huge man. The only guy that had hands close as Andre's was Jack. Yeah. And Jack was a little nutty. You know, he sucker punched Andre twice. <laughs> really? He sucker punched uh, Holly Race. Well, that's Blackjack doing Blackjack. <laughs> Yeah, he didn't. Uh, he didn't call his spots very well, right? And of, yeah, and of course, you know, Blackjack being the father of Barry Windham, Ken yeah. Windham, and the grandfather to uh, Bray Wyatt, who I still think is, no matter what happens on TV, I still think he's one of the best characters you see on television. You know something? You know where the Fiend mask comes from? Where? American Horror. Really? Yeah, the clown. Remember the clown. Yeah. yeah, the clown from the carnival season. Yeah. yeah. Wow, I never put that together. Now, yeah. Kevin, we got another Florida clip I got to show you right now. Okay. And uh, this is one of my favorite promos because, again, this is where you just terrified me to hell. So I, I love watching this one right here. And uh, it's going to be a Dusty Rhodes pr promo. And... Uh, that was, well, actually, was that, that, that would be really cool to watch. That, that's part of it, too. So you're going to get two things in that one little clip right there. That was the original video. Introduction. But that was like the first MTV-type video in wrestling. Really? Let's go ahead and play that one, James. We'll get James to load it up here in a second. And we'll have the sounds. And we're just going to dip out and enjoy it. Oop, I guess it went away. Well, he had it. Okay. And it went away for a second. We're working out all the, the bugs still with this. It's it's You're our first guest, and we're still working all that out. But uh, here we go. The haze would come to me. He will come from the city like it was the creed. I said he would come from the black side. He'd come from the depths. The haze has come tonight. It is the decreed that he will. The haze. Stand for the haze. The haze has come. It is as the decreed from the darkness. From the turmoil, he has arisen. He has arisen. This is the chairman of the board speaking from Waikiki Beach. The greatest talk of all times. Oh, yeah, King Curtis, I okay, absolutely. This evening in the purple heat is all the diamond head and the jewel of the Pacific. And all the purple heat. 
behind mark we didn't know yeah. it was a full moon that night look at that huh and we Perfect. have the greatest talker of all time in the lifetime has something that they really uh, oh, believe on, in and, and have to feel for and the special kids in the olympic hold on sorry about that we want to get to oh, as you were saying kevin i'm sorry we have the greatest talker of all times one of the greatest yeah. heels of all times we had a that was one take that's amazing. Yeah, and uh, Mark, and that water, that was January, oh. even though it was Florida, that water was cold. And he oh, was that, had to be, that had to be like 30 degrees. Well, I wouldn't say it was 30, but it was no more than 48. Just still enough to freeze yeah. you half to death. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's crazy. I mean, that that's yeah. just dying for your art. All right, Kevin, so now the second half of this promo. The most terrifying part. Here we go. And I love this because after what happens, happens, you realize there's a curtain that divides the wrestlers from the fans for the promo. Watching the fans lose their minds is one of the greatest things I've ever seen. So we're going to go ahead and play that now. The second half. Special thing to me. I mean, being able to to see with with your own eyes them kids running, jumping. You know they're not handicapped when you see them really striving to to be champions. Because uh, nothing in this world is is any more satisfying to me. And I do work with them. I look forward to working with them all over the state of Florida. And uh, they're very special to me, as you know. Like I say, you got to see them to know what I'm talking about. And they're special. Yeah. They certainly are, and of course, I think everybody wants to be a champion. Speaking of, of champions, too, I might just mention, of course, a man that you've never met, uh, but he did leave you a, uh, a very, very special glove when he left this area. The Midnight Rider uh, uh, recently uh, uh, defeated the uh, NWA World Heavyweight Champion uh, in Miami, and I know that you would, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that uh, you yourself would Slip like the it. Tongue. The tongue. I know, John Sola, that I am now more prepared than any time in my life for Ric Flair, the World's Heavyweight Champion. Because Dusty Rhodes now he has had the final time split. Man, this guy is a complete victim. Here he comes, yelling and screaming and raising hell. You told me what, Jack? You told me what, Jack? Uh, I told you I'm going to you for 30 days, and that's what I'm going to do. Now, Dusty, Dusty, please, huh? Dusty. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. And there's the purple haze. Right. And there's the fireball. Now watch the fans. They're pulling that drapery, but they're terrified to come forward because they think you and Purple Haze are still there. 
You know, Dusty doesn't get his due. You hear a lot of negative things about Dusty. But Dusty drew money, knew how to draw money. And when I came back to Florida on the angle with the sister, yeah, uh, he did the right thing. He, uh, he got beat in the middle of the ring the first night back. The lose-leave town match, which brought in the Midnight Rider. Uh, he did the right thing on Christmas Eve. Uh, we beat Dusty. Uh, he, he, I hate that people talk negative about Dream. Hey, one of the things that people don't understand in today's day is when there was territories, it was survival. You didn't know owning a territory. They said, why did they work on top and they own the territory? Because we'll say like Hogan, one of the mistakes Hogan made, in my estimation, was when he was in Minneapolis, he was so old. If he reached out to the TV station, he could have got his own TV station. Really? He could have ran against them pretty well. That's what all these promoters were afraid of. That's why they didn't let guys settle in unless they owned a piece of the territory or they thought they could control them. And if they did move in, they made sure that they knocked them down on the card, like uh, Boris Malenko was one of the greatest heels in the history of Florida. But once he moved there, he went from drawing huge money to probably six months later being in the middle and then opening the car. You know what I mean? Wow. So that's how they would get you every time. Yeah, because they were trying to protect their own business. And I yeah. understand. And the thing going back to Vince Sr. and Jr. was Vince Sr. was not a wrestler. Vince Sr. was a businessman, and Vince Sr. had people behind him, like Rocket. You probably you won't remember this, but Rocket tried to run opposition to Vince Sr. He tried to open up an NWA in New York. With Crockett's blessing. So isn't this funny? Everybody talked about Vince Jr. putting Crockett out of business. Mm -hmm. Crockett's old man wanted to put Vince's old man out of business. Yeah. And they actually went to Buddy Rogers and asked Buddy if he wanted to open up Washington. And it would be a two-front, Washington against Vince Sr. And uh, Rocker against Vince Sr. Two of the so biggest it just made the two major cities. Because D.C. Right. and New York were the major, territory, were the major yeah. cities for the WWE. And two of the biggest names in the history of the business. Wow. That's, that's insanity. Kevin, I got to tell you, uh, you, you went over the time that we asked, and we really appreciate it. We have so much more we'd love to cover. Is there anything you want to tell everybody out there that's watching, Kevin? Yeah, I mean, I just want to say this. There's things out that people take wrestling sometimes way too serious. This isn't Sir Lawrence Olivier doing Hamlet. This is John Cleese from Monty Python doing the silly walk. But go in and enjoy it. 
don't try to be such a critic if you've never gotten in the ring or if you've never thrown a pass or if you never hit a baseball. It's like, I got a brand new thing today. <laughs> I, got, I, got I knew it. I knew you were going to talk about it. I saw yeah, it. <laughs> a guy sent me who I don't even know. I, was, I have my gym in the house and, and Linda came in with a box and said, who's this guy? I said, I don't know. And I had two hats, one from the 2007 World Series. The other one's 1901, you know, with Fenway Park. With, not Fenway Park, but when the American League started. And I got two books, one from Bill Lee. And I got all these DVDs. And I always thought that it was William Shostromsky Sullivan that I beat Rice out. If you don't know anything about the business sit down and enjoy it don't criticize but go back like you have and learn the history of the business because i think it's sad that there are guys in that business don't know who lutez is buddy rogers it's like baseball players not knowing who willie mays is uh hank Aaron. yeah so, i noticed yeah. you didn't say mickey mantle there <laughs> right hey we got a Mickey Mantle now. That Mike Trout is the closest thing I've ever seen to Mike and Mickey Mantle. You know what? I, I wouldn't disagree with you there, and it's a real shame about what's going on right now yeah. that you're not yeah. being able to see him right now because these these are these are the prime years where he could do yeah. something special. This is his tenth year, and this is going to later on. If this season doesn't happen, it's going to be. I hope not, but we'll say he has 483 home runs. You know what I mean? Yeah. If he doesn't hit the 500 mark or if he has uh, 2,900 hits, uh, you know what I mean? He has 480 doubles, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I just read an article about that. It's going to affect guys that were teetering for the 10-year mark on baseball Hall of Fame, like Fred McGriff. He probably won't get in this year, so because there will probably won't be a vote. So yeah, that's know. that's that's what's affecting a lot of people right now, and yeah. they got to find amendments for that because McGriff absolutely deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, yeah. There's no doubt about that. I mean, it, it's him and Pete Rose both need to be in. I'm sorry, that's just my opinion. I know Pete. Oh yeah. Little little known fact. Okay. Dusty and Pete Rose were uh, pseudo-brother-in-laws. Really? Pete Rose had a baby by Dusty's sister-in-law. Huh. So Dusty and, and uh, Pete, uh, you know, uh, pseudo-brother-in-laws. Yeah. 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 That's, that's, that's crazy to think yeah. about. <laughs> and then, of course, the winter, you know, the Reds used the winter in Tampa. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's not the only baseball connection because you have a relative, uh, Seamus O'Sullivan, that used to play for the Boston Braves, if I'm correct. No, no, no. I don't have no. Seamus. You're talking about my uh, great great uncle that was uh, John L. Sullivan. And then my great uncle, who was Mike Twin Sullivan who was a fighter, and then my father's cousin, so I guess I'd be his second cousin, was 
either four or six times world heavyweight champion wrestler, uh, Steve Casey. Oh, wow. They were, the, they were the most athletic family in the world. Look them up, the Casey brothers. Well, it came down in your genetics too, my friend. Kevin, uh, as always, you. it's a lesson. Whenever I get to talk to you, it's a piece of history I get to learn. I always appreciate every chance I get to talk to you, my friend. Thank you for taking time out of your schedule to hang out with me. And uh, I'll be seeing you later, my friend. Thank you so much. Guys, okay. thank you for tuning in. We're going to leave you guys with this last promo. Kevin, if you want, you can go ahead and leave now. We're going to play uh, one of my favorite uh, Army of Darkness promos. Joining me this week on the edition of Grunts and Groans, the Prince of Darkness, Kevin Sullivan, the Purple Haze, and the Fallen Angel. Kevin? You know, I'm here for one reason, to explain how my family rose from the ashes like the phoenix, reborn again to dwell in the house of Habunadim, brought to us by the chairman of the board. When I was a lost person floundering in the sea of life, not knowing which way to turn, I tripped. How do I turn yourself? And as I wandered the streets, Lost in a cosmic daze, I looked, and there I saw him, the mystic one, bathing in the river. And as I walked over to him, I said to him, mystic one, chairman of the board, show me the truth. Show me the light. And he said, you have a lot to learn, my son. So sit down on this bank. And as we sat down on the bank, he turned to me and offered me the cosmic cookie. And as I chewed upon the cookie itself, everything became clear. I realized then that good and evil have been around a long time. I realized that evil and darkness has always prevailed from time immortal. When females took from our bones, they've been taken ever since. I then realized they belong for one thing, to do the bidding for us. And as things became clearer and the haze started to lift, I looked into the river and what I saw I saw a face of darkness, and I saw a face of fear. And that fear was Black Jack Mulligan. His big, ugly head rose. And then as the mystic one gave me another beetle nut to chew on, he took me to the river again. And with Og by my side, the purple haze arose. And they told me to look in the river once more. And as I looked into the river, there was not one head. Now there was many. It became Mulligan. It became Wyndham. It became Brody. And it became the lost sheep, the one that left me, Superstar Graham. And I realized then, that all the pain that all of us have gone through 
work of this final conflict. The 12th hour is upon us. The lines are clearly drawn. It is the children of the light against the men of darkness. In the tunnel where the light is come, it's going to close on Savoy's army real soon because now we are in our final hour. Okay, fans, there you have it from Kevin Sullivan, the Prince of Darkness, along with the Purple Haze and the Fallen Angel. That's what this week's edition of Grunts and Groans. We'll be back with more action. And I know, of course, that.